Welcome to episode 12 of the In the Name of Service podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Barb Thompson. Here, we broadcast stories of everyday men and women who've answered a call to serve in hopes of inspiring and catalyzing the rest of us to follow suit in our own way. Today's interview is with Michael Segru. Michael is an Air Force veteran, retired law enforcement officer, author, and father. In today's conversation, Michael tells us his story, taking us back to a traumatic, critical incident one Friday morning that completely changed his life, and how the hundreds of accounts of trauma in his law enforcement career eventually led to his book, Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. Listen in to hear how Michael turned a life full of trauma into one filled with hope and a purpose to save countless other first responders by demolishing the stigma of asking for help. Michael is courageous and full of humility. His desire to rescue may have begun when he was just eight years old, looking up to his stepfather during his career in law enforcement, but it is now fully coming to fruition. Michael suffered from post-traumatic stress for several years before finding a trusted and competent therapist. The negative stigma of asking for help at the time kept him believing that his symptoms made him weak and that he couldn't feel the way he did and still be a warrior. He was ashamed to speak about it and suffered in silence for years. However, he is living proof, as he says, that real strength and courage are demonstrated in one's act of asking for help when it's needed. He believes that the strength and power of sharing his story or your story, is where true healing begins. If you've ever dealt with trauma or are dealing with it now, please listen. And if you know any first responders, please share this episode with them or go ahead and buy Relentless Courage on their behalf and mail it to them. This book is saving lives and helping those of us close to first responders better understand them and their experiences. Michael had the opportunity to co-author this book with psychologist Dr. Shauna Springer, who also wrote the book Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us. If you're in the military or law enforcement, you're probably already well-versed on Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman's books On Combat and On Killing, which I know from my personal experience have been excellent resources for the people I've worked with in the special operations community. Speaking of Michael's book, Relentless Courage, Grossman says, It is truly the natural and essential successor to my book on combat. So, for a direct link to Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma, please see the show notes. Also, Michael enjoys connecting with first responders and those that support them from all over the world. So, consider connecting with him on social media. Thank you for listening. All right, Michael, thank you so much for being here at the In the Name of Service podcast. Start us off by just telling us about yourself, your history, your background, and what's brought you to the place in life you're at today. It's a very long story, so I'll try to keep it as brief as I can. Uh, No need to. (laughs) (laughs) Originally, I'm from the San Francisco area in Northern California. And I knew early on as a child that I wanted to go into both the military and law enforcement. And so I always had a plan. I always had a path. I ended up actually being a police volunteer at the young age of eight years old and then was actually a <laughs> oh, police cool. explorer in high school. 
And uh, after that, I went to college. I actually got a full scholarship through Air Force ROTC, studied criminal justice. And my original plan was just to do my four years and get out and go into either civilian or federal law enforcement. And I got security Mm -hmm. forces, which is basically military police, anti-terrorism, air-based ground defense, nuclear security, force protection, a whole bunch of cool things. And I ended up staying in longer. I ended up going to a bunch of different places. I was in South America, the Middle East, was in Europe, all over the U.S. And I loved it. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal time. Um, The highlight was living in Germany, and that's actually when 9-11 happened. And because of all those incidents, it kind of extended my time in, and I ended up transitioning out in 2004. Um, I got stationed back in California at Travis Air Force Base, and I ended up applying to a bunch of local law enforcement agencies. I got picked up by the Walnut Creek Police Department, which is just outside San Francisco, uh, probably about 15 or 20 minutes from the city. And I started in 04, worked a bunch of different assignments from just patrol officer to field training officer, where I actually train officers out of the academy, but also officers from other agencies that want to lateral over. Was a detective, was undercover on a California state drug task force, where we are basically focused on mid to high level drug dealers, including cartel members. After that, I was promoted to sergeant, and my real story starts um, as a brand-new patrol sergeant in December Mm -hmm. of 2012. I was involved in a very traumatic incident. It was a fatal officer-involved shooting, and that incident really just kind of changed my path, changed my trajectory. A lot of negative things happened um, because of the stigma around mental health and asking for help. I literally suffered in silence for... Mm-hmm. almost four years to the point where I didn't want to be here anymore. And I ended up finally, after some other tragic incidents, I finally asked for that help that I needed. And I started my journey of recovery from post-traumatic stress. Ultimately, I medically retired in 2018 from law enforcement. And now I actually speak across the country about suicide prevention, mental health, resiliency, um, to both first responders and military members. And and that's really a long story. Tried to make it short. That was a very long story. And it was so short. I know there's a lot more to it, but I'm going to take you way back now and ask you initially. I mean, even you took us back all the way till you were eight years old. What do you think it was within you that made you want to serve? Uh, I know it was two people in my life. Uh, my grandfather was in the Army Air Corps. And so I remember just as a young child, going to his house and seeing pictures of him in uniform and his medals. And, and I just, at that young age, had this kind of just real interest and desire to learn more about that. That's so neat. And your stepfather worked for a number of law enforcement agencies as well. Is that correct? The first one was Sausalito Police Department. And that's where I was allowed to be a police volunteer. And, and really, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't anything glamorous. It was like filing paperwork and washing patrol cars and the highlight every year was riding with McGruff in the uh, annual parade that they had downtown. But (laughs) (laughs) for me, the coolest part was I had like an official laminated police ID card. And I just, I saw the camaraderie. I saw the sense of family. Um, I I saw the passion in my father and what he did. And I just knew from that point on that this is what I wanted to do. 
That's so neat. What do you think, looking back on your career now, was the, your most meaningful experience or period of time? Well, I can tell you my most enjoyable time was when I was undercover. So I was yeah. undercover for two years on a statewide drug task force. And, you know, for me, I had worked at a medium-sized police department in the Bay Area. We were in a more affluent city, very nice area. And when I got this undercover assignment, which I wanted for years, I was allowed to work in all different parts of the county. I mean, like really bad mm-hmm. parts, really bad cities, but even outside of the county and in different areas throughout the state. And to me, it was much bigger impact instead of just focusing on, you know, small dealers, small cases, I was allowed to step outside my comfort zone and really get into a whole new arena with people that were focused on drug prevention, drug eradication, and just really trying to make a difference in our communities. Yeah. And what about your most difficult experience during your law enforcement career? Um, You know, as first responders, especially civilian law enforcement, we're exposed to hundreds and hundreds of traumatic incidents. And it's, it's literally day in and day out, at least on the law enforcement aspect, We really do see a whole wider variety of different types of calls and and traumatic incidents just because of the volume of of people in the area that we deal with as compared to just a a military base. And so the one that really stands out is that shooting that I talked about early on. And that was um, basically I was a brand new patrol sergeant. The shift started right after Christmas. It was a graveyard shift, started at 9.30 at night and went till 7 in the morning. At that point, my life was uh, literally perfect. Um, I was happily married, had just bought my dream house, had just been promoted, had a beautiful, healthy daughter. My whole family, including my father, was healthy, like literally nothing negative going on in my life. And the shift started out slow. It was our Friday. We were going to be off for several days. And a little bit after 3 a.m., you know, just hours from going off duty, a call comes out. The dispatcher, she was very frantic on the radio. And she said that there was a woman inside a condominium and there was a man armed with a knife. And that incident, really, it was just, you know, we prepare for everything. And we we realize that, you know, we may have to, to take a life at some point. But the reality of having to do that is far different than training for it or thinking about it and, and not realizing yeah. what that impact is going to be. And so not to go into full details of this event. I mean, I talk about this in my new book that came out, but right. it came down to a decision where this man armed with a knife, he, instead of trying to kill this couple, he then turned his attention to myself and my partners. And literally we had to make a choice. It was going to be our lives, the lives of the people upstairs or his life when he tried to kill us. And so that incident just it really just set off a whole chain of events of things that happened after that were related from being sued federally to multiple court proceedings, um, just just lots of lots of things. What do you believe has kept you motivated to serve all these years? I mean, first the military, um, then law enforcement, like you said, just day after day, you guys typically see the worst of what humanity has to offer. What kept you going day after day? I truly believe in a higher calling. Um, I truly believe in purpose. And I know that I didn't choose these careers by accident. They chose me. Um, I, I know that, 
you know, this is my path. And although things didn't turn out the way I planned them to be, because my original plan was that I would still be working in law enforcement today. That'd probably be a chief of police somewhere. That was my original plan. But Mm -hmm. like I said, things happen. Things happen for a reason. And this one event and the things that happened after it took me out of my civilian law enforcement career. And I I could have literally just called it then. I could have said, you know what? Um, I have my disability pension. I'm just going to go away quietly. I'm going to try to forget about the job and the things that I saw and just try to move on with my life and pretend like it never happened. But I just, for whatever reason, I couldn't do that. And what's ironic, and you know, we're here, we are on a podcast today, but back in 2019, after I'd retired, I'd never been on a podcast. I'd never talked about my story or my journey publicly. In fact, I was ashamed uh, of a lot of it and I was embarrassed and I didn't want people to know the feelings that I had, the emotions that I had, the suffering that I went through. I just wanted to put up this image in this front that everything was perfect and everything was okay. And this one individual, his name was Danny Bird. I didn't know him. He was a former police officer that lived about two and a half hours south of me, also here in California. And he ran a a fitness podcast. He's a personal trainer. Um, I'm very much into fitness. And he had seen some posts that I was doing on LinkedIn as far as like mental health, suicide prevention, Mm -hmm. not necessarily my story, but just sharing things. And he reached out to me and, and asked if I'd be a guest on his show. And I was like, you know, I appreciate the offer, but I'm not interested. And I kind of left it at that. And thank goodness he kept harassing me. He kept bothering me. He's like, look, he's like, all he needs is an hour of your time. I will drive up to you. I will meet you wherever you want. And, you know, we can do this. It'll be done with. And, and so finally I committed to it. And I'm the kind of guy that once I commit to something, I don't back out. And I remember that day, I didn't want to show up. I was nervous. <laughs> and uh, we agreed to meet at the back of this Mimi's Cafe. Um, there was no one in the back. And I thought literally we were going to sit down, have breakfast, you know, get to know each other, kind of chat a little bit before we started anything. And as soon as I get back there, he's got a laptop on the table. He's got two headphones, a video camera set up. And he's like, look, he's like, I'm sorry, but I've got to be somewhere, you know, right after this. And so literally I've got to leave in an hour. So we're just going to get started. And I I remember I sat down, I put these headphones on and we just went and he started to ask me questions and I didn't think about him. I just answered them all truthfully and straight from the heart. I mean, the good, the bad, the ugly. And eventually, a couple weeks later, when it got put out there, this is kind of where the magic happened for me is, um, first off, in the healing process, just the burden of putting it out there and getting it off my shoulders, kind of like to the point where I couldn't control it anymore, because I was trying to control it and almost keep it secret for so long. And not just the people I worked with, but family members, loved ones. But I started getting messages from all over the world, like Canada, London, I mean, all over the U.S. from military members, first responders who told me that my story resonated with their story. And they Mm -hmm. started sharing their story with me. And I I quickly realized that, you know, I'm not alone in this, that there's countless people out there all over the world who have their own story just as impactful or more impactful. And, you know, we all have our own story, but – the strength and power in sharing our story, that's where true healing comes from. And it was healing for myself, but I also know that it was healing for other people that (laughs) watched and listened to this podcast. And and that's what started 
this whole event of more interviews, which led to actual speaking engagements and eventually led to a best-selling book, which I never even envisioned or planned on. I mean, it's just, <laughs> right. I, I never in my wildest so cool. dreams, I know, could have ever imagined that any of this would have happened. So tell us about Relentless Courage, um, the story behind it. And I know I've seen the response that the book is getting from the people doing the good work. Um, but you can tell us about the response that you've seen and, and how that's been received by you. Well, first off, I've talked about Dr. Shauna Springer, um, also known mm -hmm. as Doc Springer. She is a licensed psychologist. Um, she is she actually wrote three books prior to this book, and she has worked with combat veterans, first responders most of her career through the VA and also through TAPS, a Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. And again, on LinkedIn, I mean, LinkedIn seems to be kind of the, the start of everything at. for me. It is. <laughs> like, like people don't realize this, but uh, Doc Springer reached out to me uh, a little bit before COVID happened. And she just wanted to introduce herself and talk about the work that she was doing and kind of find out what I was doing. And so we set up this phone call and she was telling me about her work now with Stella Ganglion Block which is a mm -hmm. uh, medical procedure to treat the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And we right. talk about this in the book and I've actually had the procedure. We can, we can go into that later on if we need to. But then I told her about my story, you know, like literally everything I went through. And in that conversation, she asked me, she's like, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, I kind of laughed a little bit, but I said, actually, I've been asked this before. I have kind of thought about it. I said, but honestly, with post-traumatic stress, <laughs> I don't really think I have the focus, the concentration or the drive to actually make something like that a reality. Like I'm literally just burnt out from years and years of report writing because a lot of people don't realize, but in civilian law enforcement, we spend like <clears throat> yeah. over 60% of our time writing and typing and I mean, very extensive, very detailed factual reports, you know, that are scrutinized in, in courtrooms and by lawyers and it's just, it's, it's very intensive. And so I'm honestly just like burnt out from writing. So we left it at that. A couple months later, she hits me up and she's like, look, she's like, I, I can't stop thinking about your story. She's, I've heard hundreds and hundreds of trauma stories, but your story I think is going to help countless people. And she said, I want to make this book a reality for you. I want to do this book with you. And in that moment, in that phone call, I didn't hesitate. I knew in my heart, instantly. I said, let's do this. Let's do this. And so we started this project. COVID happens. We actually never even met in person until like a year and a half into this project. We did it all oh, wow. via Zoom. <laughs> yeah. So every week we would do like a two hour Zoom meeting. Um, you know, first we laid out the, the structure of the book, the chapters, kind of where we wanted to head. And then we would do a two hour recorded interview where she would interview me on my stories and my experiences. And then she would take that and she would go work on a chapter. She'd come back to me, we'd go back and forth. And that was for my portion of the chapter, but every por every chapter has two portions. So the first half of every chapter is my story told in my voice going all the way back to childhood till now. But the second half of every story, Dr. Springer, she breaks everything down. She explains it in a global sense, very easy to understand terms so that anybody reading this book is going to truly see the human side behind the badge. They're going to see the toll of the job that we do. And she's going to, she explains the true impact 
of these things that have on us, you know, on our physical health, on our mental health, on our families, on our loved ones, on our relationships. And so that's why this book is so powerful because I don't know that there's anything like this out there in this kind of format. Usually you kind of have to pick, like, do you want to hear a war story or do you want to pick up a like textbook, you know, on clinical psychology and learn about post-traumatic stress? And, and this book gives you both. And so it has Mm -hmm. that, that balance, but, but here's something else I want people to think about. So, and this is what's so important is the collaboration between, you know, military members, first responders and trusted, culturally competent clinicians or therapists or psychologists. And the fact that, you know, I trust Doc Springer with my life. And and during this process, I had to go deep. I had to go very to some very right. dark places, but she mm-hmm. was there for me to keep that balance, to 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 bring me out of things when I needed that help to talk about things. And and this book is just, it's living proof of the power of collaboration between people. And this is any person and a trusted, culturally competent clinician or therapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is one of the things that caught my eye about it is that it's very difficult to give a good resource on, on trauma. That, you know, one that someone can read, <laughs> get something out of and not, you know, fall asleep during yes. um, that's actually useful, that's actually interesting. So why do you, I guess, like in your own words, why do you think the book is resonating with so many people across career fields? There's a few reasons. Um, you know, the first reason is it's compelling. I mean, most people that have picked this book up, and I'm talking about people that have no affiliation with, with any kind of military service or law enforcement service. They can't put it down. This book is very, very intense. I mean, it's, it's, it's shocking at some points, and it's, it's no holds barred. I don't hold anything back in this book. But the other f- side of this is that I talk about things and expose things that people don't want to talk about. And the first thing is yeah. suicide. You know, suicide is the number one killer of our military members and all first responders. That includes firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, police officers. You can even take prison guards, correctional officers. It's the number one killer. And we don't we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to acknowledge it. But the other thing and this is the thing that was kind of a surprise to Doc Springer and I, because we were kind of apprehensive to even approach this subject in the book, but we talk about moral injury or institutional betrayal, mm-hmm. admin betrayal. And I think that part yeah. is actually what's resonating most with people because it's kind of mm-hmm. like the ugly truth that in the military and in the first responder world that we eat our own better than anyone else. And we do, you know, it's so true. Yeah. And, and we think it's a family and it's a family till it's not a family. And so mm-hmm. when we get to points in our lives or our careers where we need this, you know, this family and they turn their back on us and they're not there for us, that's really what pushes people over the edge in the suicide. I don't believe that it's, it's really the trauma itself. I think trauma plays a role in it, but I think it's what mm-hmm. happens after that trauma when people don't get the support that they need, um, when people are outcasted or backs are turned on them when they, when they need people most. I think that's the part that's really, really hitting people to the core because I think for so many people, including myself, I thought I was the only one. I thought it was only me. Right. And when people right. read this book, you know, like I said, everyone has their own story 
And I'm not special or unique. I'm just willing to talk about these things. But there, mm-hmm. there's countless things in this book that I guarantee will will resonate with every single reader that picks this thing up. Guarantee it. The betrayal piece is something you don't hear a lot about. It's a little bit taboo to talk about because people go in to service with good intentions usually. And, and you don't like to talk bad about um, the folks that you've served with. And sometimes it's just the, the culture of an organization or generations of the culture of an organization and a lot of the pressures that you're dealing with daily. But you're right. When people don't feel like they can trust, like they have someone they can, they trust that they can call. Um, it just feels lonely, which I think leads to, to the thoughts of suicide and and for some people completing that. So what have you learned about healing? You you were already on your own journey of healing, but what have you learned about healing since you've written the book and you've been hearing the responses of people around the world? Well, so I know through my own experience and in, in the volunteer work that I do and in speaking and talking to people all over the world is that the process is different for everyone. There's not one magic yeah. thing that works for everyone. Um, I'll just, I'll give you a perfect example. So there's a program that I volunteer at. I've gone through as a client. It's called the West Coast Post Trauma Retreat. And in that program, they expose us to EMDR. And mm-hmm. I, I, I've seen it done. I've seen it done on other people. I've had it done on me three times. And it didn't work for me at all. But I've seen it work for countless people. And so that's just a quick example to say, look, you know, there may be something that works for somebody. And if you go and try it and it doesn't work for you, don't give up on your journey. There's so many other things out there that can help you. And for me, it was a process of a culturally competent therapist, someone I could truly open up to, talk to and trust, where I knew that that information wasn't going to go anywhere. It wasn't going to be used against me. And then I found out about peer support meetings which is where really I I realized I wasn't the only one, that I wasn't alone, that there was other people out there that I could now reach out to, you know, anytime, day or night, who would understand it, who wouldn't judge me, and who would literally drop everything at at a dime to just help me out. And then I went through, like I said, the West Coast post-trauma retreat. Uh, Eventually, I even tried medication, which I I didn't want to do, but I ended up trying some medication. I ended up going through another program called Save a Warrior. And that program focuses on complex post-traumatic stress or childhood trauma. And this is something, again, Mm -hmm. where I was really far in my recovery process as far as dealing with the work-related trauma. But I never dealt with my childhood trauma. And for me, it wasn't Mm -hmm. really on the, I guess, the far end of the spectrum as far as being very severe or very bad. For me, it was more an emotionally distant father. Uh, He was a drug addict, an alcoholic, you know, but I had a great mother. I had a great stepfather. I had a good upbringing. But for some people, it's it's child abuse. It's sexual abuse. But there's these things that happen to us early on in life that actually kind of lead us to these careers in military and being a first responder. And they make us very good at what we do as far as, you know, overcoming adversity, um, being able to adapt, like be decisive, like all these things But the problem is, is that, you know, we become these military members and first responders, and now we're successful, we're out there doing things. But in the background, we have this childhood trauma we've never dealt with. And when I mentioned earlier about that admin betrayal or institutional betrayal, this is where Mm -hmm. it comes back up. When your Mm -hmm. new family turns your back on you and abandons you, that's when it brings up all this unresolved trauma from childhood. And so now you have, like I said, complex 
post-traumatic stress. You have childhood trauma, and then you have work trauma, and then you have moral injury and admin betrayal on top of that. And so you've got three layers Mm -hmm. of trauma that you have to peel away at and deal with individually. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who think, I'm just going to wait till the end of my career. I can't, I can't even think about it. Like it's compartmentalized, right? Like if I don't think about it, it's put away and it won't affect me today. And so they wait years and years and years to tell their story or to talk about it or to even open their mind to the healing process. And uh, by that time, there's a lot there. Absolutely. No, you're right. And that's because of the stigma. I mean, the stigma is that if I talk about my feelings, if I admit that something bothers me, then that's weak. That's weakness. Right. It's shameful. And you can't be a warrior and be weak at the same time. That, that's how it's looked upon. But what I found is actually the true strength and courage comes from truly talking about when you have issues, when you have problems mm-hmm. and, and being able to share that because I can look back on my entire military and law enforcement career and the strongest, bravest thing I ever did was asking for help. It was nothing I did on the streets. It was nothing I did in the military. It was me asking for help. That was the most courageous and bravest thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. So if there is someone listening who's struggling right now, what would be your advice? What, what's the first thing they should do? Well, first thing I want you to know is that I'm living proof that there's a whole new life on the other side of this. Um, you know, I didn't believe it was possible. But I can tell you that for, for so long, I thought I was the only one that felt the way that I did. I was literally suffering in silence for over four years to the point where I did not want to be here anymore. That's how bad it got. And it took a tragic incident to pull me out of that darkness. But once I asked for that help, I found out there's actually endless resources out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, organizations, yeah. nonprofits, you know, people that want to help, that want to make a difference. But if you don't ask for that help, if you don't seek it out, you're not going to find out about it. But I can assure you there is endless resources. In fact, in our new book, Relentless Courage, in the back of the book, there's a whole section on vetted resources, on hotlines, text lines, uh, week-long programs for post-traumatic stress or complex post-traumatic stress that you can go to. So just, just realize that it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a long journey and there's going to be good days and bad days, but I promise you it's worth it. And all you have to do is have the strength and courage to ask for help. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I love the title because it is so true. Like relentless just speaks to repeatedly how you have to get up every day and have the courage to go back to that story or to dig a little deeper. So it's just, it's just perfect. But let's say there's someone out there who does feel that call to serve. They kind of had that little inkling in them, maybe that you felt when you were eight years old, but for some people later on, they want to serve, but they just don't know how or where to get started. And it doesn't have to be obviously military or law enforcement specific, but what would your advice be for them? You're serving now in a totally, completely different way, you know, than you started out. So, well, you know, the thing is you have to go with your heart and, and really, I think purpose is so, so important. I mean, to wake up every day and have a reason to get up and and to make a difference in this world. And you can serve, like you said, in a bunch of different capacities and in different roles. You know, that can be in your community. It can be in your church. It can be in the military. It can be in the first responder world. 
And I would say, you know, get informed, like find out about these different opportunities, you know, for like law enforcement specifically, let's say, if you're thinking about applying to different agencies as a police officer, you know, not just research that agency, but go do a ride along, you know, go sit Mm -hmm. in the passenger seat of a patrol car on different shifts with different people from different agencies and get a feel for how they are, you know, get a feel for the culture within that organization. And that's really where we're going to find that right fit. Because I think that's the important part of serving is you have to find out what is the right fit for you as far as mm-hmm. where are you going to feel comfortable? Where are you going to thrive and flourish? You know, are you going to have an organization that's going to have your back? That's going to look out for your interests. That's going to develop you and prepare you and bring you up throughout your career. I think, I think that's what's most important. And, you know, I have no regrets if I went back today, I would not change a single thing in my life. I mean, even though I went through hell and I lost my marriage, I mean, my health started to fail. There was a lot of negative things that happened. But when I go back today and I think, would I do it all over again? And I would. Absolutely. There is no doubt in my mind, I would do it all over again. And I miss it. I'll be honest with you. There's days that I miss being out there. There's days that I miss, you know, talking to people and contacting people and just that adrenaline rush and just every day is different. You never know what you're going to expect. And so right. just, just follow your heart and follow your passion. That's, that's the best advice I can give. I can't thank you enough for your time today, for what you're doing to destroy and demolish that stigma and, and help heal the people who have given the most for the rest of us. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. 